Hey there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today, we're going to talk about the brand new Artemis Treaty, signed by the U.S. and seven other countries. We're going to touch up on Brexit, and then we're going to end this by talking about the real Cold War brewing in the Indo-Pacific between China and India. All that and more today. everybody we're gonna get right into this and start with the Artemis Treaty now what is the Artemis Treaty it's a NASA framework for exploring the moon it comes with a set of rules now these rules are that nations and private companies are to be open and transparent in their plans for lunar missions uh, mining operations are restricted to rules stated in the international order for, uh, Oh, not order. The International Outer Space Treaty of 1967. Participants are to aid one another in reducing space debris and keeping tabs on all objects that are taken to the moon. So, basically making things safer so they don't crash into each other and create debris that can, you know, take out a spacecraft. Because in space, debris, like even really, really tiny stuff, can just wipe out your million or billion dollar project like that especially when they're moving around at speeds faster than a bullet so that's actually really important uh these these treaty participants that i mentioned uh are the united states number one there's japan the united kingdom australia canada italy the united arab emirates and to my surprise Luxembourg. Now, it's worth noting that not all spacefaring nations are a part of the treaty, such as Russia, China, and India, for example. The reason given by NASA officials was to speed up the process of establishing the treaty with the countries they believed had common values. And now that the treaty has been finalized, NASA plans on broadening the coalition, so... Uh, I expect them to reach out to probably the EU and India and what else there was there. Right, right, right. Uh, NASA was banned from doing negotiations with China so that's the reason China wasn't even allowed into the thing so we'll see if that changes in the future I don't expect that one to specifically China but as far as other countries go, I expect more to be invited. Whether or not they join is entirely up to them. Now, one of the stated intentions of the program was to preempt conflict through transparency. So if everybody knows what everyone else is doing, uh, you know, there won't be overlapping claims, hopefully, and that's the goal. There's like a little provision where, I don't know if it's a provision or if it was just stated, uh, where if someone were to break the treaty, other countries would just be asked to leave the treaty. So it's really an all-or-nothing thing from that point of view. 
And one of the interesting things to me uh, is that this is an instance where America is entering into a treaty rather than leaving or renegotiating one. Think of the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty or NAFTA or the Trans-Pacific Partnership where they left two of them and renegotiated one, which was NAFTA. So that one, a little interesting tidbit to see for me personally as an American. Uh, Yeah, I I think it's a nice thing, you know. We want to go back to space. And I've always thought that the moon was just this logical first step. Because if you go to the moon and you have a base on the moon, everything else becomes easier. Why would you try to assemble something in the middle of space, like the IS, the ISS, if I can get my English together? Why would you try to put these craft together in the middle of space or try to lift something really heavy? off of the Earth's surface with all this fuel and all these fuel tankers when you could build a base on the moon and send your materials to the moon. Because the moon has, I believe, one-sixth the gravity of Earth, which roughly translates to you can have something six times heavier on the moon. So instead of having these little pods... And little space planes, you could have, like, an actual spaceship, like the stuff you see in sci-fi. And for reasons that would be pretty obvious, that would be more useful if you had, like, an actual, like, how, how, like a frigate or a colony ship where you have a big vessel that has a bunch of these little pods that we have now. You know, the pods that we land on the moon with and then we send to Mars when we unload a uh, a rover. You could have like a big ship with multitudes of those pods and you could actually do something when you got to the planet instead of these really long drawn out missions with minimum gain and minimum materials where you send like a single rover or like three people. And then they come back. Instead, you could actually send like multiple pods and have a real mission going, a real attempt at a long-term presence on, say, Mars, or whenever we get the technology, Venus and Mercury, or maybe the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, or even Uranus and Neptune. You know, whenever we can, whenever we can get out that far, because it takes a long time to get to the outer edge of the solar system. But, again, the moon, having a base on the moon, where, especially if you could, like, assemble spacecraft, like, maybe through the power of advanced 3D printing, if you were to be able to assemble a spacecraft on the moon, whether you have to do that piecemeal by sending it up from Earth, or if you could, again, build the craft on the moon... You would save so much time, energy, and resources because, again, it's one-sixth the gravity. So that's so. if you were to build like a space plane as we know it today, the fuel would go six times farther. Just, just based off the gravity, not even, not even getting into the resistance from the atmosphere itself. So at bare minimum, you'd get six times more bang for your buck and you could build really big, vessels that are 
designed specifically for space. That's another thing that irks me about current plans. Uh, or at least what used to be the current plans for uh, going out into space was that we would try to do all this from Earth. We would try to go from Earth to Mars instead of going Earth to the moon and then from the moon to Mars when the moon is like this perfect landing ground. It's this perfect staging ground, I should say, for going anywhere else. It's a built-in space station for the Earth. And it just seems really crazy to me to where you would have these massive undertakings just to escape the Earth's atmosphere to go to, like, Mars and send these probes into the, uh, outer space. I think they encountered, they encountered, like, a wall of fire. Or maybe it was just radiation when the Voyager probe got far enough away. But, but imagine how much easier the Voyager project would have been if they had started from the moon. <laughs> it just, it, it seems so simple to me. I guess the driving factor would be cost, but even then, it'd be like, why go through this this strenuous task of overcoming the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth's gravity and waiting for perfect launching conditions when you could have a base on the moon and circum circumvent all of that, really? And long-term cut down on costs dramatically and just be way more efficient but nah i guess i guess i'm ranting about the 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 superiority of my views on space travel and how we should do it you know because you know i i like to believe i'm smarter <laughs> but who knows maybe you agree with me maybe you don't but that's my take on it so as far as i'm concerned going to the moon is a unmitigated plus with regards to future space travel, especially if it's to establish a permanent presence on the moon, like NASA and the Trump administration is aiming to do. So, that's the Artemis Treaty, and now we're going to touch up on Brexit. So, Brexit. We talked about this last time, and now we have a not insignificant update to Brexit, and that is the negotiations are done. There, Boris Johnson says no deal. They, the EU, uh, after realizing that the deadline was coming, I think the deadline was October 10th, or was it 13th? It was sometime last week, early last week, I believe. The deadline for trade negotiations came and Boris had Johnson, who he's the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, he had extended uh, the talks for like a day or two. There was a little bit of outrage among the pro-Brexiteers, and the EU had like an emergency summit. I guess it wasn't an emergency summit, but rather it was a planned summit where they had intended to have already gone through the negotiations and we're going to use that summit to just ratify whatever the agreement of the negotiations was but there was no agreement so you can't ratify something that doesn't exist and 
I guess they decided to try to, I don't know, extend the timeline further? Because from their point of view, they probably saw, oh, he, he, they didn't go through with no deal Brexit, so they must have been bluffing. But then a couple days later, Boris Johnson uh, says that they should begin preparing for no-deal Brexit and that the trade talks are basically over. Uh, One of the representatives for the EU, his name was Michel Barnier, I believe, he was going to go to London and he was told basically not to come and so he didn't. So the Brexit negotiations are done and when this year is over, Brexit will be independent not just politically, but economically. And we'll see where that takes them. Some people say that they're going to have like a recession slash depression. Some people say they're just going to have a economic boom because they'll be managing their own economy without the stringent regulations of the EU. My view is it's probably going to be a mixture of both because they trade extensively with the EU. So you might have like a recession in the beginning, but then in the long term, the Brits can pull themselves out through trade talks and negotiations with other economies. Again, without the uh, trade regulations of the EU, they can do trade as they see fit. And they're already, they already have a free trade deal with Japan. They are looking at America. America's waiting for them right now. And they're probably going to try to get a trade deal with, say, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And that's quite sizable. That is very sizable. And maybe they'll maybe they'll negotiate something with say I don't know South Korea, Taiwan, India, or maybe even China. Who knows where they'll go? Who knows where they'll go? But uh, that's their point of view. Well, that's the British. I wouldn't even say that's the British point of view. That's the way I see this playing out. A, a recession followed by long-term gains for Britain. And I mentioned last time that a Britain that is independent and doing well it basically throws into question the entirety of the EU because if Britain's able to succeed on their own, well, other countries will start to get ideas and the EU will be per- fighting a perpetual secessionist movement amongst its member states, namely Italy and Spain. But I mentioned that in the last episode, so for more on that, you can check out the, what was that, my third episode? But uh, uh, an an interesting thing with regard to the British was they did a naval exercise in the North Sea. There was like uh, an American destroyer that showed up, but it was primarily a British effort. And they had their little carrier battle group with their Queen Elizabeth uh, supercarrier in it. And, you know, it reminded me, it was a nice little reminder that Britain is a maritime power. And Britain specializes in power projection the same as the United States. Now, to a more limited capacity, especially since they don't have an empire, but that's still their strong suit. So, I also mentioned in the last episode that once they are done with Brexit, their political their geopolitical focus will broaden quite significantly to where they can focus on things that aren't Brexit. And this little military exercise has reminded me that they have the capability to strong arm militarily 
countries into doing what they want should that ever have to be the case. So, I expect the British to be in odd places around the world because they have the capability to be there. They have the capability to be wherever they want, basically. That's that's what this little exercise in their navy and their carrier battle group formation kind of made me realize as I thought about it more, the significance of it. And, you know, hence at a post-Brexit geopolitical possibility, the long list of them that exist for Britain, and probably some sort of standoff with the EU. That's what I see coming for Britain. And it's probably going to be a standoff that they'll win. But now, we're going to move over to the meat and potatoes. And that is East Asia. Now, I have brought up before that there are geopolitical hotspots and flashpoints all over the world that many of us have forgotten. East Asia is most definitely one of them. There are flashpoints inside of the countries we look at on a map. And there are flashpoints between the countries we look at on a map. And there are flashpoints outside of the countries we look at on a map. Because it's not just border conflicts. It's not just ethnic tensions. It is disputes in the water. Because you have the South China Sea. You have the East China Sea. You have the... Straits of Malacca, you have, you have a lot, you have a lot, yeah. those, those are the three main, major issues that I see, uh, I see that could, um, uh, they could turn south, you know, the South China Sea in particular, no pun intended, but given the stance that many nations in these regions have taken, on these issues, it does not seem like compromise is on the list, and they probably have their reasons for not wanting to compromise. Uh, Take Tajikistan, for instance. Tajikistan joined the Belt and Road Initiative by the Chinese. They owed a lot of debt to China, and now China is claiming basically 40% of their land. So, there's that. That could spawn some sort of conflict, especially if outside powers like, say, Russia or India, or maybe even Pakistan throws its hat into the ring and shakes things up. That could turn deadly really quickly. Uh, but for now, we have a low simmering conflicts right now. Everything's on a low simmer right now. It's not quite boiling, but it's... It's steamy, it's juicy. You have the border conflict, and it's an, a- it's an actual skirmish. I know I keep saying skirmish and conflict when I really refer to a dispute, but this time I'm actually referring to an actual skirmish. Actually, actually, and more actually. <laughs> a skirmish between India and China on their shared border in the Himalayas. Now, this is referred to as the Line of Actual Control, or LAC. If you ever see that abbreviation, now you know what it means. <clears throat> but um, they have yet to agree on what the border is. 
and th- it's been this way since well since India was a colony of the British and now that they are independent they are, their claims are what the British said the territory was well what, their claims are what the British said the lines in the sand are China disagrees um, so basically it's what's yours is whatever you can control so there have been multiple skirmishes where you have Chinese and Indian troops fighting it out in these massive brawls of a couple hundred people whenever they meet up they agree not to use weapons and by weapons that that just rules out guns really cuz they there have been reports where they showed up with bats <laughs> and sticks and stones literal sticks and stones and they're just beating each other and people have actually died in these skirmishes uh, on top of the deaths due to the climate because this is the Himalayas we're talking about so this is really harsh terrain and hostile to infrastructure so hostile to large military movements or at the very least large movements of military vehicles uh, so this is kind of the worst place to fight a war but they fought a war before and if world war one has shown us anything uh bad ideas don't always stop wars from happening so trench warfare in the himalayas could be on the table if anything bad would happen but uh i mentioned that this is the real cold war brewing in the Indo-Pacific region. It is not between China and the United States. They China and the United States are drifting apart. They're not really in they're not really talking to one another. The Americans are phasing themselves out of the region. If you look at the naval base in the Philippines, it's international rather than just a purely American base. So there are many indications that the Americans are just w- happily waltzing away and they have cover now because India has thrown its hat into the ring in the South China Sea I believe I mentioned in what was it my first episode I'll mention it again here that India and Japan have signed a 10-year strategic pact so for 10 years India and Japan assuming nothing goes wrong between the two, they are uh, allies right now. They are allies, and China's moves with their Belt and Road were seemingly meant to box India in, because China built relations with Burma, they built relations with Pakistan, they had friendly ports in Burma, Pakistan, and in Sri Lanka, which is the little island off from the southeast of India, It's right next to India. Uh, So China has friendly ports there in all three of those countries. And of course, China borders India to the north. So literally boxing them in. And India's response in involving itself in the South China Sea and all of the the constituent or rather the involved nations in that uh, conflict 
has effectively put a noose around China's neck. So now you have China with a noose around India's neck, while India has a noose around China's neck. Because now India is a part of this broader coalition, uh, this anti-China coalition in East Asia between countries like Japan, South Korea, uh, South Korea not so much, but they're there, so Japan, Taiwan, you have the Philippines who is kind of uh, figuring out what they want to do, whether or not they want to cozy up to China, you know, changing course, or if they want to remain in the American sphere. Now, every time they flip-flop, the Americans kind of slide farther away, and that seems to send their president into, a, like, a, I wouldn't say a panic, but really makes him uh, turn back towards the Americans every time he sees that America keeps slipping away. And But whenever America's there, he tries to uh, cozy up to China. He seems to want to play the two powers off of one another, when one of them is leaving the area at large. But at the very least, should he commit to an anti-China stance, he will be at the center of a broader coalition against China. So, that again, that coalition being Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, and uh, increasingly, kind of, maybe, who knows? There's Brunei, there's Malaysia, Vietnam is an avid supporter, and now, uh, India has thrown its hat into the ring. Now, Indonesia has been largely passive because they're kind of isolated from the problem. They don't really have much in the way of direct access to the South China Sea, which explains that when you look at where they are on a map because they're blocked off by Malaysia and Singapore. But they're there. So... Uh, they can, they could get involved, but they seem to have very little interest in doing so. But there's still a broad coalition anyway. And a lot of these countries are actually dependent on China economically. So it's interesting to see them turn on China like this in a geopolitical sense, despite being as economically dependent on China as they are. And... I guess that just goes to show the power of geography in influencing decisions. And speaking of geography, I'll go back to Britain for a second. And uh, to push my point of geography being a deterministic factor, uh, back in the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon tried to impose a continental system where the nations on the continent of Europe weren't allowed to trade with Britain. Um... And Germany, in the lead-up to World War II, tried to establish a system of autarky, so that's basically self-sufficiency. Now, I'm not comparing the governments of France and Germany to revolutionary France and Nazi Germany. No, what I'm doing and what I'm saying is that it's interesting how geography of these countries, which for the most part doesn't change, still influences their policy to this day in that the EU has been a largely protectionist bloc that's in charge of the entire continent, similarly to how revolutionary France was, well, not revolutionary, but Napoleonic France 
was and Nazi Germany were. And now they're going to be in this same situation where they're going to be trying to restrict trade with Britain. And it's just really interesting seeing that similarity in the three separate centuries. In the 1800s with France, in the 1900s with Germany, and now the 2000s with the EU, where they're in this same predicament where Britain's very existence threatens their, their existence, really. And that just goes to show the power of geography in determining policy. And to go back to East Asia, again, all of these countries are economically dependent on China. China's they're a bigger trading partner than the United States is, and yet they are still compelled by their physical location on the map to resist China's uh, attempted expansion. Uh, it's just a really interesting thing to note. Taiwan in particular probably has no love for China's expansionism because, well, the Chinese make regular threats to uh, retake the island. And it w I was watching an episode of China Uncensored. They're a YouTube channel. They've been covering China for years now. They brought up how uh, China usually said peaceful reunification with Taiwan and now they have removed peaceful whenever they bring up reunification with Taiwan indicating an, an escalation in the rhetoric that given mil China's military buildup and their naval buildup to the capacity that they've done they would probably not rule out an amphibious invasion of the island They'd probably be met with uh, guerrilla warfare. Taiwan has shifted their defensive posture away from reliance on American aid. So there's that. And that'll make them a little bit more resilient to any Chinese incursions. But the Chinese have overwhelming military capability. And Taiwan isn't that far away. So if a war were to break out. And Taiwan was by itself, I would expect China to basically swallow them up and complete the uni the reunification of China. But uh, they, the Taiwanese, for now, are not by themselves. The Japanese could step in at any moment because the Japanese rewrote their constitution so that they could come to the defense of a Japanese ally and... I mentioned in my first episode that a Japanese ally means whatever the Japanese want it to mean. And, well, that could mean North Korea for as far as we know. A uh, little bit going on with Kim family. I'll get to that in a second. But China, well, I'll get to that and what China's been doing to Taiwan in just a moment. All right, we're back. And I mentioned I was going to talk about China and Taiwan and touch up on North Korea. We will start with Taiwan. Uh, China has flown 40, almost 40 jets over Taiwanese airspace. Now, I was watching a video talking about uh, all the information China can get from doing this. It seems like just a, a move to flex muscles, but there's actually some information you can gather from this. Such as how fast the Taiwanese can scramble in it, scramble their jets. 
uh, how long it takes for them to lock onto your aircraft. How long does it take for them to get to where you are when you're moving at a certain speed? How long does it take you to get there when you launch from, uh, say, a certain air basin, like maybe around Shanghai? How long does it take your jets to get to Taiwan, moving at what speed? And how long does it take them to get back? How much fuel do they use? Could they perform a combat operation based on the fuel usage and the time? Lots of really relevant information for any war that could potentially break out. And, you know, given that China continuously threatens to retake Taiwan, this is quite the quite the useful information for them in the event that they were to actually try to pull it off. Now, there are speculations that they would attempt to do this before the 100th anniversary of the... Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the government, the, uh, I don't know quite how to put it, but I'll just say that, uh, the end of the Chinese Civil War that led to the current communist government that is in power and led to this split between the People's Republic of China, which is Communist China, and the Republic of China, which is Taiwan, uh, that, the Civil War that led to that, the Chinese, well, the, the Communist Chinese, won the Civil War in 1949. So there are speculations that on the 100th anniversary of that victory in 2049, they would either launch some sort of operation to retake Taiwan, or they would want to already have Taiwan in time for the 100th celebration. My guess, given the current pressures on China would be that they would attempt to do this before the 100th anniversary, because they have a bit of a demographic uh, inversion going on right now. Uh, If you look at their demographics, they have like this bulge of people that were in their 20-somethings about a decade ago. Now they're in their 30-somethings, approaching 40-somethings. And every generation, every group of people that come after that is just increasingly smaller. And it's like this dramatic drop-off. And then it's like stably shrinks. So you imagine having more old people than young people. And to those of you who have to take care of your grandparents or your elders, you you would know how much those medical bills are to, you know, take care of their basically their age, the illnesses that come with age, like, say, arthritis or cataract, or maybe even they have Alzheimer's, or maybe they just have chronic pains that you need constantly buying medication for. It's expensive. Getting old is expensive. So you can imagine what would happen to a society where there's more old people than there are young people, and the limited capacity of those young people to pay for their elders and the impacts that would have on economic growth. So China has a bit of a demographic crunch and really all of East Asia does. Japan is already at that point where there's more old people than young people, I believe, or at the very least there's like, oh, I think there's like a third of the population is retired. So they have like they've had a stagnant economy since the 80s so 
mm, I guess all this entire region is looking towards these massive internal pressures. And who knows what those internal pressures would do to them if, say, they caused some sort of uh, something, not an internal pressure, but rather a boiling over of internal pressures that causes some sort of radical change in government. And they take this hard stance. And then the other countries in the area who are undergoing the same pressures would be like, we we can't afford to, we can't afford this. Like, say, if China were to set up some sort of new tributary system that would help them pay for their elderly population, a lot of the other countries in the region eventually would be like, we can't, we can't afford this. We have to take care of our elderly. We don't have the money to pay you endlessly. And so you could have these struggles for basically for survival. Basically for survival because well who's gonna who's gonna give who's gonna give? Who's gonna blink? And none of the countries in these region in this region are going to raise their hand and say me. And I I believe that there is real potential for conflict here. And again, remember all of these countries, with the sole exception of India, are economically dependent to China, and yet they have taken this grand stance. These countries, who many of them hate each other, really, but they, I guess they despise China more, at least right now, despite being economically dependent on China, they have taken a geopolitical stance against them. And internal pressures with the aging demographics of like South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan, and China itself, could play into this existing problem where you have this dispute in the South China Sea, and it could make everything worse. And uh, noticeably, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and China all have the uh, most capable militaries in the region. You know, outside of India, but India unlike the other countries, doesn't have much in the way of projecting power, but it's it's integrated into this anti-China coalition, so that might be alleviated through friendly ports. Similar to what China was doing with the Belt and Road Initiative. India, whose navy uh, it doesn't specialize in long-range missions, can just uh, hop through a string of pearls, so to speak, which is what the Chinese called their maritime route for the Silk Road, India could use its own string of pearls through its own friendly ports to project power farther away than it usually than it otherwise would be able to. Now, North Korea uh, is in an interesting spot. I uh, I said I would get to them, and uh, there's some rumblings going on in the uh, leadership of North Korea. You know, not not much gets out about them these days, or for the past couple decades, but uh, back in, what was it, March or April, uh, Kim Jong-un just disappeared, and everybody was, everybody in, say, the West was panicking, and everybody was going wild with the speculations, of course, we here know that speculation is always the fun part, so we're just gonna run with it, and they were like, who, who steps in, it looked like it was gonna be Kim Yo-jong, 
well, Kim Yo Young, if we're gonna be, if we're gonna be specific with the pronunciations, Kim Yo Young uh, stepped up. Then Kim Jong Un came back, and basically began making it clear that his sister would be in charge if he were, if something were to happen to him. Um, they, there was rumors that he had like a stroke, but um, so they basically made it made it more clear and transparent who would be in charge if the supreme leader, uh, as Peter Zion would put it, slipped in the shower and fell on some bullets. And then uh, more rumors came out speculating that uh, Kim didn't actually come back, but rather it was a body double. And I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's a body double. It could be, you know, you, you never know with the North Koreans. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. You, you can't you can't just come out one day and say the God Emperor has died. That that doesn't go over well in that kind of society. Unless you have a clear a clear successor, which I guess is what the goal is now, with Kim Yo Jung probably being trained up to take control of the country. Especially if the rumors are true that Kim isn't actually there and it's a body double. <laughs> but interesting things coming out of North Korea. They're in an interesting spot, too, because they have South Korea to their south, and they have China to the north. But North Korea has gone through a bit of a detente. There's, there's been talk of a second Trump-Kim summit. Um, probably, it'll probably lead to some easing of tensions. Of course, there's always going to be, there's always going to be uh, the front that needs to be put up, because, you know, North Korea has basically told its entire population that South Korea and America ha are their enemies. And, you know, you can't just uh, walk away from that in a day. So, I think potentially good things are coming for North Korea. Especially if they get, like, some sort of uh, integration with the South. Maybe some sort of confederated government. So, like, really practical and... Uh, how, do I, how should I put it? Really basic, bare essential, bare bones unification of the Korea, the Korean Peninsula. And uh, yeah, so that's that. Who knows how China? Uh, who knows how China will respond to that? Who knows how South Korea or Japan will respond to that? But um, I believe South Korea despises the Japanese almost more than they hate the Chinese. And if anything, they would probably hate the North Koreans the least out of their three neighbors. So, unification is potentially on the table. That'll be a very interesting thing to look for. Again, it won't be like a full-on political unification, but cl probably closer to like the dual monarchy that Austria, hung the Austria-Hungarian Empire had. But instead of a monarchy, it's like a dual government where you have God... God Queen Kim and the Prime Minister of South Korea. Some sort of military pact between the two. North Korea puts its troops on its border with China and they're backed by South Korean technology. That would be a lethal one-two combo for anybody. And then as for... 
Yeah, yes. Well, that's North Korea. I actually managed to go on longer than I thought I would. The, the idea just kept coming to me, you know. Speculation is always the fun part, but I never expected to be able to speculate that far. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, what else do we have over here? What else do we have over here? Uh, I, uh, right, 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 the broader Cold War brewing between China and India. The real Cold War that we should be looking out for, not China and America. Because India is further involving itself with the pan-anti-China coalition in the South China Sea, um, which uh, uh, includes Australia, you know, if I can grab my vocabulary and my words. It includes Australia from time to time, you know. The Australians do have standoff distance, where they can just pretend that the Chinese aren't there, but the Chinese are heavily involved in their economy, so they tend not to. They're, um, the trade ministers... Uh, actually, I'll get to that in a second. I want to talk about Australia for a second. Australia has uh, increasing fears about China's influence over them politically and economically. Um, they have... Basically, there's been like this report. I think it was... I don't know if it was a report or if it was like this release of data. Uh that basically showed that Australia was the most China-dependent economy in the developed world. Now, China obviously views that as an excellent thing, and Australia views that as a negative thing, and China obviously disagrees. But in the wake of uh, many countries, you know, cozying up to India as a means of protest to China, with Taiwan being one of them, uh, I forgot to mention that Taiwan, uh, there was tensions between them and China in the lead up to Taiwan's National Day, which is basically uh, a celebration of their independence from the mainland. But everything is complicated with that due to the one China policy. Uh, they started to cozy up to India. India was told by Chinese officials uh, basically not to recognize Taiwan's independence or recognize Taiwan as an independent country. India did quite literally the opposite. So you have a, a cozying up between the rebel province of Taiwan and India. And things are really heating up over there, especially with China cracking down or on Hong Kong. So the this Cold War between the actual participants is heating up, especially once you get to Australia. Now, I mentioned uh, just a minute ago, they are the most China-dependent economy in the developed world. China sees that as an unmitigated positive. The Australians view it as quite the negative thing. And they have been looking to India to diversify their foreign dependencies away from China. Now, obviously, the Chinese would very much prefer that Australia not do this, but the Australians uh, probably see that as an unmitigated positive, diversifying their foreign dependencies. And an interesting thing that came up out of this desire from the Australians was that 
Uh, the Indian, Australian, and Japanese trade ministers have all agreed to work towards making the Indo-Pacific supply chains more resilient. Now, if we translate and cut through the political BS, or rather the politically polite and, you know, <clears throat> polished talk, when we cut through and translate into regular people terms, uh, they mean to make these the Indo-Pacific supply chains more resilient to China, the, or less dependent on China. How, however, you want to view that, and that—that's what it really means. And again, it's just an indication that the real Cold War is ramping up, and the lines in the sand are being dug. Now. It is unclear how those lines in the sand will ultimately end up. Because, again, the Philippines is flip-flopping. Duterte doesn't know if he wants to be uh, against China or with China. Uh, the Russians could throw their hat into the ring uh, from China's north. We know Mongolia isn't going to be on board with China. We're they're outraged that the Chinese banned Mongolian from the Inner Mongolia province, which is actually in China, and has more ethnic Mongolians living there than ethnic Mongolians living in Mongolia. So they're outraged that China banned Mongolian from those schools in Inner Mongolia. So we can count Mongolia out. Uh, China's basically picking fights with all their neighbors. So... It depends. It really depends, because right now it's looking like China isn't going to have too many friends, especially with North Korea, the happenings, the goings-on in North Korea, where they're beginning this detente, I should say, with South Korea and, you know, the United States. So, But anything can happen. They could grab the Philippines and basically throw a wrench into these pan-anti-China coalition forming in the South China Sea. Maybe they could buy off Indonesia, which would really, if you look at a map, Indonesia, if China were to, say, buy them off, or, or just cozy up to them and drag them into this, that would bring a whole new dimension to this conflict. Because now, China would basically put a wedge, a geographic wedge between the South China Sea and India. Because that's where one of Indonesia's islands are, the island of... Uh, it's not Java. No, that's not Java. West Sumatra, I do believe. Uh, it's probably Sumatra. Okay, okay. There's Northwest and South. It's the island of Sumatra, I do believe. The one that sits right next to Singapore, the big one. So, if China were to cozy up to Indonesia, that would throw a whole new dimension into this. Because now, instead of a pan-anti-China alliance that only has to look in one direction, which is China, it'd become, a two front, it'd become two fronts for everybody in the South China Sea. Malaysia in particular, because Malaysia has an actual land border with Indonesia. So, China does have opportunities to snag the Philippines and to snag Indonesia and basically set up a 
regional balance of power, really. Or at the very least, friends that they could count on in the event of a conflict. With Indonesia, of course, being the most significant, I believe, because Indonesia is a predominantly Muslim nation. Now, why is that important? That is important because India is at arms with Pakistan. And India, in its um, ethno-nationalism, well, would it be ethno-nationalism? Religious, you know, Hindu nationalism that is actively uh, seeking to uh, bring India together around the Hindu Indian identity rather than the more Islamic uh, identities in India. And of course, the Muslims in India do not appreciate this. And that's why you had a war between Pakistan and India in the first place. And why you've had multiple skirmishes between them. It's religious tensions between Hindus and Muslims. India still has a very large Muslim minority population in it. And they border Bangladesh and Pakistan, which are both Muslim nations. Now, there... If, so if Indonesia were to throw their hat into the ring, and I know this is a, a lot of hats, you know, you could have a fire sale. They would, through religious means, be at odds with India. Now, there's, uh, on the note of religion, that would be a real problem for China, given the whole, uh, killing off of ethnic Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Some would call it a genocide. I would be one of those people. But, um, that would be a major obstacle to overcome. But given what they've managed to do with the Belt and Road, uh, particularly in Pakistan, uh... They and Kazakhstan, who is also a uh, Muslim nation, I don't think it would be too much of a problem for them if they brought the economic incentives. So, say what you will about the ethics of such a thing on the part of Indonesia. The Uyghur problem, the Uyghur question, could be circumnavigated by Chinese economic heft. And China will have that for at least the next few decades, at least for the foreseeable future. So that's a major strength that the Chinese have in potentially creating a new alliance and uh, really, really drawing lines in the sand that the Chinese can potentially accept, you know, as far as competition goes, uh, having maybe the Philippines or just Indonesia, who is a very large country in terms of population and physical size, the Chinese who are going to be increasingly um, dependent on exports of uh, finished goods and services, Indonesia with its 260 million people would be a very good market for the Chinese to have access to, especially if they can't access Indo India. So even just having Indonesia would be really good for China. And again, the Uyghur problem could be circumnavigated with Chinese infrastructure, the Belt and Road. They could promise infrastructure projects in Indonesia and basically give them unlimited funding.
and gain a strategic ally in the region. Now, and I say what you will about whether or not the Chinese could win a long-term engagement with all of these countries. I'm pretty sure they would rather engage with a friend rather than without a friend. And again, you have the potential for China, Indonesia, and the Philippines. China, just the Philippines. China, just uh, Indonesia. But those alternatives are all better than China by itself. So, this is a very complex region. China is also butting up to Pakistan. We mentioned that and how they're boxing in India. And they're butting up to Sri Lanka. It's... Given the integrations between the nations on this, and this is a really, really big, vast swath of land. China itself is roughly the same size as the United States. So, all these countries being drawn into this singular uh, geopolitical contest that could spill over into a conflict rather easily, especially once the lines in the sand are drawn and people dig in, you could have you could have a catastrophe and there you're talking billions of people in this region alone you're talking billions of people that in the event of some sort of catastrophe caused by a a world war 1 style entanglement of alliances that countries honor and join the conflict believing it's going to be short and brief you could have this mass die off of people and that's before you factor in that China, India, Pakistan are all nuclear powers. That's before you get to the nukes. If you're just looking at conventional military power, if you're just looking at potential food disruptions and countries playing dirty, you know, China imports a lot of food. If India would throw if India and Japan would use their navies, that they could strangle China's food supply, millions starve. China could bombard India's um, food production zone, which is largely um, snuggled up to the Himalayas, so well within China's range, millions of Indians starve. Uh, you could, oh God, just just thinking about that, just thinking about the millions and billions of people that could be at stake. In this real Cold War that is going on, you know, this is this is the real thing to keep your eye on, India and China. This is the real Cold War, not America and China. America's retreating to the other side of the ocean. This is where the conflict is brewing. And it could be lethal. I can't stress enough how much of a cataclysm that would be, especially for countries outside of this region that are dependent on this supply chain manufacturing steps in this region, China in particular, you could see um, you could see a, a major conflict here. I w I don't know if you would call it a world war, but it would be a great war, a great war too. But, uh, the first Asian great war, definitely that, and it would have ripple effects across everywhere that is dependent on this region for whatever region. I mean, for whatever reason, whether it's food or finished goods or supply chain manufacturing steps, it could send recession uh, just riveting across the world.
So be on the lookout for things happening in this region. All right. Now we'll we'll end off in just a minute. Well, there you have it. A uh, post-Brexit bust and boom and a new Royal Navy to rule the waves. Uh, perpetual separatist movements across the EU, an international structure that the Americans are committing themselves to rather than walking away from, and what could be the beginnings of a major conflict that could have a kill count that puts World War II to shame, complete with its own genocide. And that's before you factor in the nukes. Wow. You know, things really are changing. They're, they really are. You know, I, I had written that down to be my, my closing phrase whenever I would end my podcast. I wasn't expecting it to be so true. You know, it, it just sounded nice. But I guess it's a little more than just nice. It's pretty freaky. It has its bright spots and really big dark spots, but above all else, it's true. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. That is about all for today. Now, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. You know, hope you found something good to look at, look forward to, and maybe something to look out for. But either way, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. On my geopolitical podcast. The world, as I have mentioned, and as I was not expecting to be so true, is changing. It's changing, folks. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus.